This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Do you find yourself juggling multiple websites and clinical tools as you care for your patients? NeoCarePal is a resource providing access to multiple clinical calculators in just one place. To learn more, visit nicuconnections.com backslash NeoCarePal. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. It is Sunday. We are back with another interview. Daphna, how are you this morning? I'm great. I love interview days. So <laughs> it's way more fun to have people in here than just talking to you all the time. So fair enough. Thank you for saying that. Today, we have an amazing guest. I love guests that have multifaceted approach to neonatology. And we are joined with by Dr. Eliza Myers. Eliza, welcome to the show. Thank you. For people who are not familiar with who you are, you're an academic neonatologist in the Yale New Heaven Children's Hospital System NICUs. You are the medical director of one of their level three NICU, the Bridgeport unit. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And you have an extensive bio. You are a neonatologist. You are a lactation consultant. You are doing some innovative things with an app that we're going to talk about today called Track My Milk. So we're very excited to talk to you today and find out more about all the things that you do. Wonderful. So the question we start with, you if you've listened to the show, you know it. Like, how did you find yourself in neonatology? What was the story behind that? Oh, the story behind that is I loved my pediatric residency program. I did my residency at the University of Rochester, and it was a very gentle program, I think by design. And I felt like the place where I saw the most action, where I like did stuff, where we had to make decisions without someone looking over our shoulder was in the NICU. So I loved the... That's surprising like, to running to the. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> <It was> a... <laughs> I feel like most of us have the opposite experience. <laughs> really? Like what? <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, you, you had to go to the delivery room and you had to like do it right. And there was no one there. You just had to do it. And it was a busy NICU service as I am I mean, a big, probably 70 bed-ish NICU. And it was just, you just like do stuff all the time. And I, I really liked that, you know, not waiting for someone to tell me what to do. I just had to do it. And obviously it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful supportive academic neonatology service where the, where the neonatologists watch us like hawks. I guess I mean, in the delivery room, we had to you know <laughs> just do it. And I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit about your, your background even before then, because I, I was reading through your bio and I was noticing that you majored, I guess, in college in visual and environmental studies. And I think that's such a fascinating aspect of this, especially when you tie things with the, the NICU. Can you tell us a little bit more about that interest of yours and, and how does that tie in with your current role as a neonatologist? 
Yeah. That visual and environmental studies is just a fancy way of saying studio art. So I really was a studio art major in college, which is fancy. Also, I went to Harvard, but it was a studio art major. I feel like I've had this tension my whole life where I I grew up wanting to be a doctor. My dad is a doctor and I grew up seeing him working so hard and seeing how much his patients loved him and just thinking, well, obviously that's exactly what I'm going to do with my life, but I'm not really a born scientist or mathematician. And so my academic career, I was much more drawn to the liberal arts and studio arts in particular. And I think I just sort of got lucky. Like I figured out that I I could major in this thing that I really loved and was and really good at. And I also sort of knew like that was going to be the end of it. Like I was going to do studio art in college and then never again, because I was going to go to medical school and be a doctor. But I did a post-baccalaureate degree after college, one of those sort of great one-year programs where you do all of all your pre-med stuff in one year. And then I went to the, that was at Bryn Mawr College. And then I went to the University of Rochester. And But I, I have figured out a way to get back get back into doing visual arts. I mean, partly just by being creative at work and partly by continuing my own studio work. Well, tell us, I'd like to hear more about that. I think that we have so many non, quote unquote, non-traditional applicants into the community. And that basically means like, you did literally anything other than, you know, the routine pre-med track. But I find that there's like so much value to that. I think it adds such a richness to your life for one, but also how you think about problems in medicine. But it's kind of routinely discouraged, I think, in the undergraduate world for people who are looking at med school and things like that. So, I mean, I'd love to hear more about how you've continued to keep that in your life and what you think. What What is your message for people who have a background that is <laughs> a little bit multifaceted? Well, my message is definitely do the thing you love. Don't flunk out of the science classes and look into <laughs> these right. post-baccalaureate programs. They won't take you if you do poorly in the science classes. So better just not to take them in the first place, <laughs> which luckily I figured out pretty early on. And then in my own life, I just kept painting really sort of watercolors are easy to do anywhere, small scale oil paintings. And then when we're in the last eight years that we've lived in New Haven, I found a place where I can keep, I like painting big, large scale paintings. So I found a studio where I can keep a big canvas and um, I have a, I go on Thursday nights. And so it's sort of ingrained in my family also, like that's what mom does on Thursdays. Is she I think nobody at work knows this, so this might be exciting when people listen to it. <laughs> you made it sound like maybe you're doing some crafting at home. This is oh, like yeah. the real deal. You're really doing art here. Oh, I'm all big on the crafting at home too. Like I will <laughs> custom knit you a sweater with your name across the front of it. No problem. But yes, I go to a art studio, a painting studio and paint large scale paintings. I try and be loose, but my internal drive is to be sort of like creepy and meticulous. And but I try and loosen up like that's the one place where you just it doesn't matter, right? The stakes are so low. Nobody's gonna live or die. It's just making a painting. That's so interesting. And I love that you've scheduled in it into your week, really, because I think that's where a lot of us lose sight of our hobbies and our other passions is we feel like there's not enough time. But you're an exceptionally busy person. So how do you make the time? You just schedule and then you just do it. I'm into Rules, not decisions. Don't think about it. I love that a lot. What is the importance of visual arts and arts in general in bringing you balance as a physician and maybe how you see this also as an outlet for your patients and and your families? I think maybe just flexing a muscle of creativity, just thinking about things outside of the box. I mean, first of all, it's just very relaxing. You know, some people swim and some people meditate and some people go to their painting studio. So I think it's good to be 
have a, a relaxation practice, whatever it is. But I think thinking creatively and thinking outside of the box and thinking of, I think is incredibly helpful. It's certainly what's driven a lot of my projects at work. I wanted to also then touch on, we've talked about, about you as, as a neonatologist, we've, we've talked about art, but one of the aspects of your profession is that you are truly dedicated to breastfeeding and feeding human milk to critically ill newborns to the extent that you actually are a certified lactation consultant. And, and if I remember correctly, you said that you're, you're hoping to take this brand new board exam that is coming out in 2025 for breastfeeding and lactation medicine. I've never heard anybody being excited about a potential of taking <laughs> a board exam. But can you tell us a little bit about where did that come from? Oh, yeah. I Where did that come from? I think that there was sort of a natural intersection between my life. Well, I should step back. There's really not, I did not get a lot of lactation specific training in either breastfeeding medicine training in residency or in fellowship. I think I had an awareness that there was human milk use in the NICU when I was a fellow, but I, I really, I was, I thought he's going to ask me this. And I just couldn't come up with anything more than having an awareness of and a regard for the work that the lactation specialists were doing, but nothing specific. Like if you had asked me on any given day, what is that, you know, what does baby Smith consume? I don't think I would have been able to tell you. So that wasn't part of my daily rounds. That was not like something we dwelled on in detail during daily rounds. And then I think there was, I think over time, I have four kids. And so I think that there was a sort of this sort of intersection of my personal life where I was sort of for a long time was either pregnant or breastfeeding somebody and then my professional life and becoming aware of the role that the neonatologist could play in promoting human milk. I think those, those paths kind of merged. And I had a new job at the time at Yale. So this new job in the Yale system where for the first time I had it's a beautiful unit with a lot of resources, people who said yes to my ideas, people who said, yeah, you can spend money on that. And I, so I, I had opportunity and I saw that what we were missing was sort of specific NICU focused lactation. And I thought, well, I guess I'll do it myself then. I love that. In my you know experience, I feel like every unit has the one person in the unit, sometimes a nurse, sometimes it's a physician, sometimes it is a lactation consultant primarily who says, this is important and I want to talk about it on rounds. But truthfully, in my experience, I think it it is not uncommon that neonatologists say like, yeah, human milk is important, but like if we don't get it, we've got this other stuff. And that's not really my job. It's the lactation people's job. It's the bedside nurse's job. But why do you think it's important that the neonatologist, the physician, the head of the team really takes a stake in the procurement of a human milk? You first of all, you just like summed up the last six years of my life. But <laughs> uh, why? Is it? Because because it is so important. I think it's like one of the most important things we have in our toolbox to prevent neck, to improve neurodevelopmental outcomes, to enhance family centered care, to make the parents happy. And why it's gotten pushed to the side or it's siloed in its own sort of like private arena, I don't really know. And I, I've read lots on the topic. Is it because it's a women's health thing? Is it because we're talking about breasts and some physicians don't have breasts? I just, I, I really don't know. But it it seems so obvious to me that it need, that discussing human milk needs to be part of 
daily rounds in the same way I make this analogy, particularly when I'm talking to non-physicians, if I'm, if I'm explaining this project to, to leadership people or tech people, and I make this analogy to the pancreas. And I say the pancreas is an exocrine gland. It excretes insulin. You know how it's doing a job by checking the patient's blood sugar, which is a number. The breast is an exocrine gland. It excretes milk. You know, how well it's doing its job by checking how much milk it's excreting relative to the age of the baby that it's feeding. It's not complicated. I get these like light bulb moments, particularly with non-physician people are like, oh yeah, I mean, right. So it's a num- it's just a number. We're just talking about the number. I've thought a lot about your question. Why don't the neonatologists talk about it? But maybe, uh, maybe that's changing. The tides, they, they are changing. So how do you, how do you have the time then to integrate, you know, all these other additional skills? Because it is a specialized training, um, into your daily practice. What does that look like for you on rounds? What does that look like for you uh, in the afternoons when you're doing your kind of bedside walking around? Tell us a little bit about that. I loved doing all the learning to become an IBCLC, I definitely do not do the bedside work that the bedside IBCLCs do and that they do so well. So I'm not the person who's spending 30 to 40 minutes at the bedside, like actually helping the baby latch. I've really allowed my focus and my area of expertise to be initiating and maintaining the milk supply of a parent who's separated from their baby. So I'm much more into the physiology of the milk supply than the, which can be discussed on rounds and and does have, that's more time limited than the amount of time you could spend promoting all the best breastfeeding behaviors and putting babies to breast like that. That's infinite. And I don't have the time for that. So I'm very grateful for the amazing lactation specialists who I do work with who do do that on the groundwork. Yeah, but I, I love that. And I think, I mean, what you're saying is something we can all do on rounds because it is not the extra 30, 40 minutes at each bedside. It is, I mean, you tell me, what are the top three three things? Is it asking mom how pumping is going? Is it documenting the uh, the supply? Units are really starting to look at how can we get more milk at bedside? What are the top three things we can all be doing? I can stream, streamline it from three things to two things because I say milk, <laughs> milk in two places. Places. We talk about it as a data point. So it's a, it's a piece of data. I like it in the eyes and O's. This is what the baby consumed. This is the bit the baby peed and pooped. This is what the parent produced and expressed breast milk. And then again, in the feeding section of the plan. So this is the, um, when, when you're in the FEN section of your plan. The track my milk stuff is so cool because it feeds that data. It like the magic of track my milk, if I'm if I can just start talking about it, is that it it feeds the data point of how much milk the parent pumped into the data section of the note. So it just you're not asking the parent anything. You're not looking at a pumping log. You're not chasing them or tracking them down. Okay. Well, I guess I mean now's a good time, I think, for us to really talk <laughs> about track my milk since you brought it in. And just so people who aren't familiar with it, it's called Track My Milk. It's an EMR integrated mobile app allowing real-time clinician review of human milk production in order to support initiation and maintenance of human milk supply. Uh, You won a Yale New Haven Health Systems Innovation Awards for this app. So tell us, if somebody's never heard of it before, tell us what that app does and what it looks like. I will. So I always get in trouble when I talk about it as an app, even though that's how the, the parent perceives it as an app because it is like sitting on their phone, but it's truly an optimization to the MyChart app. So this is only going to make sense to people whose hospital systems use Epic. Epic is an electronic medical record company and their patient facing 
portal or their patient-facing service is called MyChart. And MyChart has a desktop version that can sit on your desktop, but it also has a mobile app that patients keep on their phone. And you can do tons of cool stuff with MyChart. You can look at your upcoming appointments and text your provider to ask a question and you can request your medications. I mean, it's a nice, it's a nice app. But we built into MyChart a pumping log. So I describe it as a very fancy pumping log, but in fact, it's an incredibly basic express milk pumping log, but it lives in the MyChart app. And because it lives in the MyChart app, it can input data directly into the electronic medical record. So the parent enters data on a pump by pump basis, which is exactly how all all the pumping logs that you can buy in Apple, in the Apple store, in the the mobile app, any any sort of like... No, I was going to say the the iOS store or the Apple store. Yes, the iOS store. I panicked about how you're supposed to pronounce iOS. But yeah, the Apple store, the iOS store, you buy your pumping log. So it's like a sort of very basic version of one of those. But the magic is that when the parent enters on a pump-by-pump basis, so every time they pump, they put in how much milk they pumped, it goes into a data server and it gets gets put back into the electronic medical record, into the flow sheet lines that the nurses use to document feeding. So as the clinician, when you go into the NICU eyes and nose flow sheet and you look and see how much the baby PO'd, how much the baby gavaged, there's also how much the parent pumped. And we have it tallied up. So the parent enters on a pump-by-pump basis, but what you see in the flow sheet is the 24-hour milk volume. Because the literature, all breastfeeding medicine literature describes 24-hour milk volumes. We can also see how many times the parent made an entry. And then because it's in a flow sheet line, like anything else that's in a flow sheet line, you can have it auto-populate your note. So every day when I open my note and I refresh it, a new, the new data of the last 24 hours of milk volume appears. I actually have a seven-day tally, so I can look at a trend over seven days. I can see how many times the parent pumped. So you're not asking the, the questions anymore. Now you know. So we know that best practice is to pump six to eight times in 24 hours. And if the patient is not meeting the milk volume targets that we want them to meet or that we hope that they meet to be on a trajectory to achieve a full milk supply, because we know that the literature says 500 mLs by day 14 predicts taking home your premature baby on a human milk diet. So if we're not seeing that trajectory, we make interventions. And that's, I mean, that's it. And it's been extraordinarily gratifying. And I have definitely changed the trajectory of people's sort of milk making careers by identifying either too much milk or more commonly, not enough milk and making interventions. Lots of techie questions coming up. How did you build this? Like, was this uh, like a ton of coding and whatever, or was this relatively, was this something you had to delegate to a team of developers? Is something you built yourself? No, I did not build it myself. I got extraordinarily lucky. I, so I'd embarked on this big journey about breastfeeding education and I'd figured out all the best practices. Like I had all this expert knowledge and I had no expert know-how. So all the lactation luminaries say, to best support a parent, a NICU parent in making milk, you have to keep a pumping log. You have to track initiation and maintenance of milk supply. And I was like, okay, okay. But like how, how, what, what kind of pumping log? I don't, nobody tells you exactly how. I did, I made a paper pumping log, but nobody ever used it or looked at it or the parent would say, oh, I left it in the car. Like, oh, I didn't really fill it out. Or I, I, I didn't add it up or I, uh, I didn't have a pen. So the paper pumping log was a total bust. So I, I went through a lot of iterations of, of like how actually get this done. I spent a long time actually vetting. A, there are third-party milk uh, management systems that your hospital can buy, and they do this really well. They're really fancy. They have all the bells and whistles, but they're also really expensive. And I was doing this right around COVID, and the hospital said, no, you cannot spend money on that. 
they are, um, you can't spend money on anything. What you can do is pitch to the Yale innovations team. So I'm just incredibly lucky to have a job in a place that has an actual innovations team. So I made a pitch to the Yale innovations team for, I wasn't even sure what I was pitching. I mean, I hadn't even gotten as specific as like, I, I want it to be embedded in my chart, right? I was just like, I need a way. So I pitched to Yale Innovations and I just got incredibly lucky because they, one of the IT sort of experts assigned to me, it was a former NICU nurse. So she just got it. She was like, oh yeah. And her husband was a MyChart expert. And she's like, you know, we should, it was really her. She said, we're, we're going to put this, we're going to make a pumping log and we're going to put it in my chart and it's just going to populate the Epic flow sheets. And it was just like done. After that, it took us a year to build it. Remember, I'm the kid with the colored pencils. Like I'm not, I'm in art class. I'm not, I'm not coding anything, but I had, it was this terrific sort of serendipity of the right people in the right place and people saying, yes, let's do this. And I think I had probably a compelling pitch, you know, probably with like pictures of babies in it or something. People love a baby. And so we just did it. It took a year. We started in the summer of 21. And by the winter of 21 into 22, it was obvious that the thing was going to work. And we submitted, applied to present at the Epic XGM conference in the spring, which is their sort of expert user conference. And Epic said yes. And then we had a deadline. Then it was like, oh my gosh, we got to get this. Like this has to work by May of 22. And it did. So by May of 22, we were live collecting data from patients and putting it in the EMR and into the notes and into a data set and acting on it. So that was the spring of 22. And now we're in the fall of 23. So since in that more than a year, we've made tons of amazing refinements, just making it better for the parent experience, basically. So they get messages back, they get data back, they can see their own trends. I just recently, this I think is super cool and also not my idea, but I totally ran with it. We have a little message that parents get that say, if you are not making 500 mLs by day 10, please contact your lactation specialist. And we now have a little button and you can just tap it and it opens up the dialer on your phone and dials the Yale outpatient lactation specialist service. So it just takes all the friction out of it. And how cool would that be if you had that for like everything in your life? You don't even have to press the buttons. It just does it for you. That's right. That would be awesome. Now that this is built, we don't get to use Epic. So I'm, at this point, our level of concern is just jealousy. And we're just like, man, that'd be kind of nice. Right. Oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> However, if you are using Epic and somebody says, oh, man, I would love to implement this in my workflow. Is this something that they could just request from Epic? Or is this something that's going to stay internal at Yale? Or is this something that they could just roll out right away? How does that work? They can't request it from Epic yet, although that is definitely my goal in the next year. Right now, they just contact me and I do a presentation at their institution. And then I share the build document with them. And then my IT people talk to their IT people. And it's just sort of like, a, like an on the ground sharing kind of thing. In the future, I'm hoping that Epic takes it on. Yeah, we'll get there. So, but theoretically, anybody who has Epic could go through this process and get the exactly network. I have like a Lego analogy, if you will indulge my Lego analogy. It's Love as if, Lego analogies. Okay. Epic is Lego. And I have made like a super cool Lego set. Like I made, I, I, I thought the baby Yoda was going to be behind me, but like I made the baby Yoda Lego set. But the problem is I built a custom piece that's not a Lego. And so Lego is like, we're not going to sell your cool set. 
because it has a non-Lego piece in it. And so the, with Track My Milk, almost all of it is an epic build, but we did hire a custom code writer to write a one piece of custom code. And Epic is saying, we can't take on your project because it has this one piece of custom code in it. However, in the next year or two, they're going to rewrite that. They're going to, the custom code is going to become incorporated into Epic and then they will sell my Lego set at Epic. That was both very easy to understand and also frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) But in the meantime, um, yeah, I I share with anyone who's interested. And so is there a concern that like parents are going to be inconsistent? And right, I mean, in Epic, we document, the nurses document. And while we're always prone to mistakes, parents have no incentive. Like they could say, screw this, I'm not logging it in. So how do you make sure that uh, it's compliant, or maybe you don't need to make sure it's compliant because it's been adopted across the board by everyone uh, who you've presented it to. Uh, I just don't worry about compliance. So it's a when that that was a big question in the very beginning phases of the project. There were people who who were like from a safety perspective. They they thought they were saying, but what if a parent doesn't do it right? And I just said, well, then like what if you know? Right now we know nothing, so this is only knowing a little bit more than nothing. I would say that my parent feedback has been almost uniformly entirely positive. Parents are completely pleased to do something on the phone. They see that my daily note includes their milk. And I put little like little Easter eggs in my note that's like, the baby was like wearing a purple onesie this morning. They see that I'm reading. They, they see that I'm writing a note. They see that I'm looking at their milk data. They see that I'm commenting on it. So they're perfectly happy to participate. And some parents say, this is totally not for me. And I say, that's totally okay. What 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 works? How can I help you? What works for you? So I don't worry about that inaccurate or missing data. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would counter that by saying the babies, the parents have the biggest incentive to do the documentation correctly more than any of us. That's their tiny human. How has that transformed your approach at the bedside? Because now I'm going to have to explain why I'm asking every question now, because Daphna is going to be on my case otherwise. But I think what you've done beyond providing a cool, useful tool to parents is that you've actively made the parents a partner in the care of their infant. How does that transform this experience at the bedside? Well, I think only for the better. I'm not I'm not sure I can get more specific than that. I think it means I skip a lot of the conversation about how much did you pump? How much are you pumping? I, I get to, I just could like skip past that to let's talk about best practices or how can I help you or tell me about what pump you're using and maybe I can make, make a more specific advice or. So, so let me reframe that question then. Has you, have you seen that parents feel are different because through the track my milk app, they feel like, Hey, I'm an active participant in this and I'm not just a bystander watching other people care for my kid until my baby is ready to go home. Do you see that this there's a, almost a halo effect of because I can take ownership of my milk production and track this, then I could also take ownership of other things that are happening to my child in the ICU? Yes, yeah, some of those unmeasurables, you know, the things you can't measure on your app that we... Yeah, I haven't. I can't say that I have, although I love the idea. And I will now maybe tailor some of my sort of, I do like a little exit interview about like, what was your experience with lactation and how'd you like the app? That's how we've made a lot of changes based on feedback. I'll try and elicit that. I will say we've seen, or you alluded in the introduction to Yale has a, is a system of NICUs. There's one giant NICU in New Haven and then multiple small community NICUs. And I'm the medical director of one of the, the community NICUs. And in my community NICU where Track My Milk use is Nearly every patient uses it for nearly the entire duration of their hospitalization. And me and my two colleagues act on the data very 
you know, we, we act on it quite, we use it robustly in the, in the way that I intend for it to be used. We have seen truly significant measurable outcomes in the use of human milk at discharge, moving, I mean, moving the needle in a way that I, I'm not even sure I thought was possible. You know, I didn't set this up in a QI framework where I said, I'm going to change this from 60% to 80%, but because maybe I wouldn't have even hoped that that would happen, but we have changed our human milk at discharge rates from 60% to 80%, which is really major. And of all, I've made many, many interventions. And now at this point, I do have control charts where I'm, you know, putting little arrows in and saying what intervention happened when. And it's the track my milk intervention that's, that's making the difference, I think. When you're taking on a project like this, I think as a physician, I think there's always a concern of like, definitely I said in the beginning, we have very, sometimes to a fault, siloed team in the units. We have our respiratory therapists, we have our occupation. Like, do you feel like as you're walking in, as a certified lactation consultant, do you feel like, oh man, am I, are the lactation consultants going to accept me? Or are they going to say like, oh my God, this doctor's trying to like tell us what to do. And like, how does that, that dynamic work? Oh, that's so interesting. I never even thought about it. I mean, part and one problem with the Yale system is we don't have a lot of lactation specialists. I think if you ask if you ask any lactation specialist, what is the biggest problem here? They would say, we are stretched too thin. There are not enough enough of us. So I no one has complained to me that I am getting on their turf, although maybe they wouldn't do that. So I'm not sure. But I think what you describe is common for a lot of health systems, you know? I think a lot of health systems say, how few of these people can we get by with, even though if we really had all the support we could hope for, it's like a lot of person power to get the time in. I had a kind of a similar question. I I often find that sometimes our, our nurses are protective of their duties. And they say, well, uh, you know, it's really like a nursing thing. So why, why are the doctors getting involved? And I, I wonder how you feel about overcoming that sentiment. I think that everything that the Track My Milk feature does takes away from the annoying stuff I used to ask the nurse. If I used to say, hey, when mom calls, find out how much milk she plans to bring in. And now I don't say that anymore. So I think I've only taken work way. That makes sense. My other follow-up question is kind of related to that. I feel like a lot of times, let's say trainees may be interested in something that is not thought to be like, I don't know, maybe in the physician lane. And so how can we support trainees who have kind of these, you know, unique ideas that don't follow kind of the traditional model? I think I, that goes back to just do it. Ask forgiveness, not permission. Like, you know, follow follow the thing you're super interested in. If the question is specifically to lactation and breastfeeding medicine, I think I am hoping that with the introduction of this new board examination for physicians, the North American Board of Breastfeeding and Lactation Medicine, and I think a heightened awareness of the importance of physician level, a provider level education in breastfeeding and lactation medicine, that I hope that there are trainees who who see this as not, as not a siloed thing for only the lactation specialists or only the lactation nurses, but something at, at the physician level too, at the neonatologist level. And then I had a Borderline techie question about, you know, like you said, you're artistic and, you know, the tech is maybe you're not so comfortable with the tech language, but what, you know, guidance do you have for people who are interested with that sort in that sort of 
thing that is kind of maybe outside of their area of comfort, but they, you know, they've identified a problem. They feel like they have a solution in getting these kind of new dynamic ways of integrating these ideas in in technology. I think if you can't build it yourself, then you got to figure out the right people who can and then make, make up a compelling pitch and jump in and do it. I only am familiar with the Epic world. So Ben, you, your hospital, Daphne, does your hospital system use Epic? Neither of you? I only know how to answer the question in the realm of Epic, which is that they offer lots and lots of classes for physicians and physician builders to take to become well-versed in the language. But that's not a very helpful answer to you guys. <laughs> no, I, but I was wondering if there was a thought about being able to have the coding transition to some of the other EMRs. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive and female portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. To learn more, visit hcp.meadjohnson.com. Oh, oh, like track my milk. Yeah, I think it would be totally doable. As long as the EMR has a patient-facing portal and as long as that patient-facing portal communicates with the in-house EMR, it feels completely doable. And I think, so, you know, another, when I, another analogy or like the place in my chart where we put track my milk is the place where a physician might order you to check your blood pressure at home and then your blood pressure data comes back into comes back into epic or check your blood sugar at home and your blood sugar data comes back those data points come back in usually to a message box and what's different about track my milk is that the data points come back into the flow sheets which gets back to Ben's question about well what if parents do it wrong like the flow sheet is fact and the the parents are entering numbers maybe they're doing it wrong turns out i said it doesn't really matter if they do it wrong nothing it, it does not change the baby's clinical management if the numbers are wrong so just you know go with it so as long as i think you're working with an emr that has a patient facing portal that can communicate with the emr you could totally build a very analogous system and you can call it something better than track my milk and i won't be offended for some we've built mobile apps we're in the process of building a mobile app. It's a frustrating experience. So for some, it's energizing. So you you build one and you're like, I'm going to build a hundred more. And for some, it's like never again. Do you look at other aspects of your work in the NICU and be like, man, we could build something for this. We could build something for that. Or are you completely discouraged by the tedious process of developing a, a mobile application? Well, it is so interesting that you ask that because I think one of the coolest, the most energizing and exciting and awesome things about the Track My Milk project was that I did it basically totally by myself with this incredible Epic, this like very niche team of Epic builders. Yes, exactly. Power couple. Me, Me and Michelle. Michelle, if you're listening, it was just us. And so with this success, now I have gotten roped into many other projects, many of which are big and bulky and getting six people in one place at the same time is nearly impossible. And so there was a nimbleness to track my milk and an excitement and an enthusiasm and a nimbleness that that made it possible. Now there's downsides to that too. And that now I have this like fleshed out project and I'm all by myself trying to now get my 30 odd 
colleagues, you know, 80 odd colleagues, if you add in all the advanced practice providers to understand it and take it on, where if we if we had been a giant committee all along, maybe we'd have more of that elusive the buy-in, you know, people talk about the buy-in. Buy, you have to mm-hmm. buy-in, <laughs> the buy-in. Um, so I'm now I'm engaged in projects where there's way more people, and you gotta meet, and it's impossible. That that I find exhausting. I do I do enjoy just getting stuff done by myself. Yeah, I think it's this is something that's very hard because obviously as the project become more ambitious, then they need a larger team, and then like you said. You said it's nearly impossible to get five people in a room. It is actually impossible. Like, let's be frank. We've tried this as well, and it's just, it doesn't work. So uh, yeah, it totally resonates with that. Let me ask you a little bit about, I think Daphne touched on this, but like, has this expanded your view on, on how medicine is being done from a research standpoint, right? I mean, where it's not the usual thing to just tweak Epic and get a new, a new technological tool to help parents track something. Like, it's very, very innovative. How has that morphed into how you conduct research and what you see the future of research to be for clinicians like like you and us? I think parent engagement, especially for neonatology, where you know the patient is the baby, but the patient is also part of the structure that is the family. The parent engagement on the platforms that the parent uses is is incredibly important, I think. So getting away from paper and towards whatever platform the parent wants to be using QR codes, videos on YouTube, mobile, mobile apps. And then I think this parent entered data or this, this parent provided data is also super interesting. We're good at measuring a lot of things in neonatology. We're very good at numbers, but having, I guess, measuring the patient experience through what the parent provides is, I think that's also going to be very important for the future. I mean, if when you think about, I have this massive data set on infant feeding that goes back a couple of years now across every baby born into the Yale health system. And a lot of that is driven by track my milk data, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it seems like each new innovation then opens up a whole new possibility of, you know, research questions and ideas about where to go. Next, you know, you said you said that you didn't make it a, a QI project, but you you actually have quite some experience in in QI methodology. I wonder why you didn't do it as a in a the QI format. I think all my my formal QI training has sort of come after the fact. I had this wonderful colleague join me a couple of years ago. She was new from fellowship, totally understood QI, saw me you know, I'm like machine that they pull the bingo balls out of like the cage filled with bingo balls and the balls are like flying out. And she was like, I like your ideas. I'm going to structure your ideas. And so she, she has really helped me understand how QI works in a way that's super engaging. Like she's like, we're going to take this project and we're going to do it. Uh, we're doing like this. And we're going to make these charts. So we're going to put these arrows and we're going to see how it works. I could go backwards in time, I think, and, and do that to track my milk. I'm not sure there's like a ton of point to doing that after the fact, but I definitely see that as understand that going forwards. You mentioned in the beginning of the interview about Track My Milk, how you can automate some of the support that can be provided to parents if certain milestones are not met. I am wondering if you're looking at new artificial intelligence tools and see the promise of what they could offer for even picking up trends and even catching parents even before they reach the point where their supply is below a certain threshold. Like, Are you entertaining those possibilities? I have not. I have heard people talk about it on the list of things to think about. Super cool, I know. but frightening to imagine advice being given by a robot. Yeah. And and I think to me, the most frightening thing is just 
artificial intelligence. I think to me, that's the biggest and the most frightening thing about it, not in a negative way, but the fact that artificial intelligence can pick up on patterns that are we're completely oblivious to, telling you this mother's supply is going to go below the threshold in the next week. And you could have looked at it a hundred different ways and you would have never seen this. I'm not exactly sure. And so I think to me, that's where it's both scary, but also very, very promising. I'm sure you're right. It's too scary <laughs> to think about. We've spent a good bit of time talking about your work in milk and I um, and the, the patient experience, of course, but I actually um, had an interest in some of your other work. You've done some studies on like functional connectivity and looking at, you know, the brain microstructure. And I actually, I really feel this is a blossoming thing in neonatology. I think it was you know, a decade ago, it was like a hot topic and then it kind of settled down. And you've done some work in, you know, the outcomes of preterm infants and, and follow-up. I, I feel like we're missing something in the NICU, this time period where the baby brain is growing and developing. And while we try to change the way our NICUs look in terms of lighting and single family rooms and we try to control for noise. I feel like there's potentially some, not just removal of noxious things, but some interventions that we could do to to assist in either the rehabilitation or this growing connectivity in the brain. And since you have kind of a little bit of a background in that, I was wondering what, if maybe you can speak to why isn't this a big area of interest in neonatology? Oh my gosh. Well, that's such an amazing question that I have no articulate answer for. That was all my research from fellowship. And my first job after fellowship was so different from my academic fellowship that I really, I didn't, I haven't stayed in touch with any of any of that literature or that work. But I, I'm with you. I mean, I know we we designed uh, my the NICU that I work in now is brand new built construction. And we tried to do all the things that you're talking about, the single family, the everything is dark, you know, the blankets on the isolates. We have a, a massive project in reducing blood draws and blood sticks, which has been hugely successful across the system. Not my work, but work that I'm totally in support of. And I'm not sure. And we, we have a music therapist who comes and we have the OT and the PT, but I'm totally with you. I don't know. I don't know. Eliza, my, my last question for you today really goes back to, to the work you're doing with Track My Milk and see if you do have any concrete next steps for what the future holds for Track My Milk. Is this something where you're looking at dissemination or is there something, is there a next level that you're considering in the near future that people can look forward to? Oh, yes. Locally, I want the tool to be used in the same robust way across the whole health system at Yale as it is in my small NICU, because I, that's where we're going to see. I'm, I'm a fraction of the babies in the Yale system. So I want this at the big hospital. And then I really think it's possible that Epic will take it on and make it part of their build so that any hospital that purchases Epic and has the Stork platform, which is the mother baby platform, parent baby platform, will have, will just be able to use Track My Milk. And then um, I think it'll be really exciting to see what other like add-ons and enhancements people do to it because that's what Epic is all about is have is user enhancements. Uh, Eliza, thank you so much for making the time to be on with us. This was a fun conversation. Congratulations on on Track My Milk. It sounds like a fantastic app. We would we wish we could have access to it. And uh, we will put your contact information in the episode page. And again, thank you so much for making the time to be on with us this morning. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. 
You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.the-incubator.org. You can also message the show on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, at NICU Podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.